This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. So great to be with you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. And thank you for being so good at reaching out to me or the Pro-America Report team. If you go to ProAmericaReport.com, it'll click through. You can go into the contact thing, send an email. It goes right to my phone. You can text me directly, 314-256-1776, 314-256-1776. It's just awesome. So much feedback from you all. I'm being being asked uh, by some of our folks if they can use our podcast, uh, you know, to to in other places, pass it around, of course. I mean, I think um, Salem Radio Network posts it on our websites, and then um, you go to my Twitter feed, you'll see lots of standalones, but it's great. So thank you for doing that. ProAmericaReport.com. Go there. Sign up for the daily email that goes out every morning at uh, 8 a.m. East Coast time, 5 a.m. Pacific time, and in between wherever you live, and it gives you a few things that you need to know, and then one big point or two. Sometimes this commentary, this first opening of the show. And so here we go. Let me tell you, we're, we, we have some work to do uh, today. We'll cover some of that. Some incredible things happening. Nancy Pelosi acting like a dictator, which I've told you over and over again, the only dictator in American political life is... The Speaker of the House for lots of reasons, including, by the way, um, that the history of the um, House and some of the leadership in it. I've been listening to a uh, book on tape. I told you I love books on tape and I've been listening to a book on tape on one of the most interesting uh, leaders of the um, American uh uh, uh, Congress. He was a senator a couple times. Then he was speaker for many years. Henry Clay. Henry Clay kind of lost to history a little bit, uh, but he was one of the guys that consolidated a lot of that power. And Nancy Pelosi's messing around. We'll talk about that later. Uh, and we will also talk in a few moments with my new friend, Eric Campman. Eric Campman. And he is a guy who has started, along with my friend Al Regnery, uh, this new book shop, uh, book publisher, a uh, Republic Book Publishers. It's really good. And then we'll also catch up with Rick Elkin. Rick Elkin. And, and um, also, uh, and he's an author, and he sent me one of his books, and I've been reading it, and he'll be great to talk to, too. So, all right, so we got a lot to do. we got a lot to do. But first, can we say, can we say that Rand Paul, Rand Paul, Dr. Rand Paul, senator from Kentucky, he is a national treasure. He is a national treasure. He, he is um, such an important voice in America He's just extraordinary. And I, I'm, look, I'm proud to say I know him pretty well. I, he campaigned for me when I ran for office. Uh, my daughter interned in his office. But putting that aside, knowing him as a good guy, his wife Kelly is really nice and they have a nice family. But in public life, most people don't want the friction, meaning the negative attention for saying things that they find to be true. And so they just don't. And it's not so much that they're lying. It's that if you're a U.S. senator, you, you don't want to get grief all the time. You may you take a stand on some certain things and you may be pro-life and all. And, and you might be at certain issues on um, the size of government or something. But some issues are too hot and you just don't want to be bothered. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, by the way, I'm not entirely criticizing. I'm just describing. Rand Paul's not like that. If he sees something that's wrong, that's BS, that's just nonsensical, he just says it. Whether it's uh, John Brennan and the NSA uh, listening in on Americans, John Brennan lying about it, you know, before the Senate, and Rand Paul just railing on him and railing on the NSA. Most Republicans, at least before the last three or four or five years, would have deferred to the national security apparatus, including the NSA. Rand Paul didn't, even back then. 
I mean, he, he has stood up on uh, Obamacare as a doctor. He stood up on uh, the the um, the impact of of uh, criminal justice. I mean, he's been a he's been a guy that's uh, been sort of you know he he calls himself a libertarian, but he's not really because he's pro life and he's uh, more conservative on certain things. But this deal with Fauci in the last you know two or three days, where he just said, look. You're lying to us, Dr. Fauci. Actually, he didn't say that. To his credit, Rand Paul is too clever also. He basically said, wait, the NIH has a definition of of what it means to fund this certain kind of research. And your definition is working on viruses that move, making it easier for them to move from animals to humans. Gain of function, it's called. And it is true, empirically, that's their definition. And it is true that in 2014 or so, there was money that went from the NIH. And I love this. Fauci said a sub-grant. That means you give money to someone who gives it to someone else, but you know where it's going. And it was for gain of function. And so Rand Paul, very cool, very calm, read the definition. He said, you know, Dr. Fauci, you said you never did this. You did. And Fauci did what liars do. They say, I've never lied. Whenever somebody says, I never lied, it's, it never lied before the Senate is actually what he said. It's, when you, it's the qualification that's damning. But then he called Rand Paul names. Then he called Rand Paul a liar. Then he just hemmed and hawed. His body language went south. It was ridiculous. But here's the thing. Even the conservatives that like to have been critical of, uh, of, of Fauci don't necessarily go out of their way to do what Rand Paul did. And he's just a national treasure. He just says stuff that needs to be said. He does stuff that needs to be done. He has a voice. He's just not afraid. He's fearless. He's fearless. And for a politician, this is huge. And it's probably because he wasn't a politician. He was a son of his dad who was pretty famous. And he was a doctor. Rand Paul was a doc- still is a doctor. He goes on mission trips to, to do eye surgery because he's an eye doctor, uh, an eye surgeon, among other things. And uh, But... He's not a politician in the normal sense, so he doesn't bother. He doesn't need your affirmation or my affirmation. He doesn't need to be on uh, Meet the Press. He just is going to say what he thinks is true. And it's absolutely important. In this, you know, I've talked about this, the self-censoring of the dynamic uh, in this country right now where the narrative machine, big tech, big media, big government is used to sort of intimidate people, um, not even sort of, intimidate people into self-censoring. That's one of the things that has to, you need to self-censor so you don't get trouble, so you don't get grief, so you don't get, te- you know, don't get tension, so you don't get beat on. Rand Paul, in this, in this kind of um, wonderfully understated, cool persona, he just says it, tells it like it is. And he's just not, he's not interested in you affirming him, it seems to me. So he just does what he's going to do. And people can criticize him and yell at him and call him names or whatever. And Twitter went crazy trying to protect Fauci. But the point is that that Rand Paul has this unique position in and he, he's not even beholden to the um, to the Republican Party leadership because he kind of does his own thing. I think he gets along with everybody. It's another part, secret of his success is he's very likable. It's hard not to like him if you talk to him. He's just a likable guy. And so he, he, he but he doesn't always he doesn't always toe the line. He doesn't always go along. It's just a national treasure. It needs to be we in a time where politicians fall into the categories of politicians, where they're doing the same things, you know, over and over again. Even the good guys and gals are sort of falling into that. He just stands out. He stands out as a national treasure. I think people um, see it now because of Fauci, but I don't think you know the scope of it. 
I'm trying to think of some other examples. Oh, on, on international affairs. International affairs, he's someone who says Congress should be the ones that declare war, and he doesn't want to see wars. He's anti-war. Now, that used to be even, they used to be incredibly far out of the mainstream of the Republican Party. You were really sort of a weirdo if you were anti-war. But he is anti-war and pro-Congress and Constitution in saying we'll decide what's going on. He doesn't want to bomb Syria. He doesn't want to bomb other people. He doesn't. He thinks he's kind of America first before America first. But more importantly, when somebody bombs Syria, even Trump, Rand says, I'm not sure that's a good idea. Right. I don't know if that's I, did we do that right. And he's been a leader in that direction in a huge way. Same thing with the uh, the goal of nation building or the opposite of nation building, which is the media sort of Russia, Russia, Russia hoaxing us. Rand Paul's like, hey, you know, find the common interest with people and, and, and make sure they're not threatening us and then just kind of chill. And it's just an, it's a very refreshing. It's very important. He's a very important man in this moment, very important senator and very important public figure. That's a better way to say it at this moment in American life. And you see it every now and then come to display. By the way, let me be clear. I do think there's a reason why somebody like him gets attacked by his neighbor and has a serious health issues. He was on the baseball field when that crazy shooter shot Scalise and others. I mean, he's lived uh, he's lived on the edge because people recognize truth tellers are powerful truth tellers that don't need affirmation from the from the swamp or from the, the deep state or anything else. Very powerful, very threatening, very good. So he is Rand Paul is a national treasure and we should encourage him, support him, pray for him. And just you thank the good Lord that we have guys like him in this country, guys and gals like him. There's lots of there's some women that are standing up like he does. It's been extraordinary to see. So thank you, Rand Paul, for all you do. All right, everybody, we're going to take a break. We got a lot more to cover. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here in a Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here in a Pro-America Report. Some of you that listen closely have heard me speak about a, a publisher uh, that I have admired so much. They're authors. It's called Republic Book Publishers. And I think my all-time favorite, well, let me say it differently. My, one of my favorite books in the last two or three years is a book that's called Old Abe. And you've heard me have John Cribb on. It's an extraordinary book, but there's lots of them. There's lots of them in there. The Decline of Nations is a great book by a gentleman named Joseph Johnston. Extraordinary. And of course, Brandon Weikert keeps coming back on the program to enlighten us on space. Well, this is all coming out of Republic Book Publishers. And the two men that founded it are named Eric Campman and Al Regnery. And uh, Al Regnery, you, everyone, we've had him on the show on a couple different topics when Facebook was trying to shut down his authors and all. People kind of know Al. But the other guy in this is Eric Campman, and Eric Campman joins us now. He has had almost uh, almost five decades experience in publishing, uh, Simon and Schuster, Viking Press, all kinds of things. But he and Al Regnery started Republic Book Publishers to publish good uh, authors. Uh, most of them, many of them, conservative, but not only. I guess is a, you know good, just good writing and good uh, books. So welcome, Eric. How are you? Good to uh, be here, and I just want to correct one thing. It's all not right. almost five decades. It is, is five it? decades. <laughs> all right. Well, I didn't want to date Shocking. you. I didn't want to get I'm you in shocked. trouble. You. <laughs> <laughs> no, nobody wants to get in trouble right. on that one. But uh, I'm young yeah. at heart. And, uh, there you go. Well, so I'm, And I'm very glad to be here with you. Well, thank you. Now, Eric, here's a funny. Let's just start with a, a, a funny question. What, what's your favorite book 
of, of the Republic book publishers, the ones you guys have done in the last uh, four or five years, what's your favorite one? I mean, it's like asking a father his favorite kid, but I still, I want to do it. What, what do you think? So uh, it's a, it's a, a question uh, for right now because we have a bunch of amazing books coming uh, for the rest of this year and for next year particularly. Uh, mine mm-hmm. is yours, Old Abe. Um, I was involved the agent who uh, used to work for me at Simon & Schuster, and she's one of the uh, great agents and had a very rough time trying to sell John Cribb's wonderful book on Abe Lincoln. And um, he, she just called me and I, sort of out of the blue, and uh, I just loved the idea of it, read it, and said this is a classic um, in the best sense of that word. And um, because thanks to uh, our friends at Facebook, um, it got to number 10 on the Amazon um, overall bestseller <laughs> list. So, yeah, exactly. uh, it was, it was targeted. <laughs> yeah, it was. It, it's really good. And I, the only thing I tell uh, John Cribb, I'm like his I'm like his unpaid advisor. I say every time I talk to Regnery or Al Regnery or you, I'll say this. Let him do the next one. He thinks he's got another one in him. I, I said, get, get after it. We'll get this done. But anyway, all right, Eric, tell me about this. People are watching and they watch books get canceled. You know, Josh Hawley's book got canceled by one of the big publishers. He did ultimately publish it later. Um, but they're why you know, we're seeing voices silenced on social media sort of somewhat dramatically the best one is donald trump gets pulled off as president um but what's the reality of uh publishing in terms of the sort of unseen um decrease in voices it it feels like that's a if it's a threat to have facebook and 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 uh and and uh twitter silence voices publishers are making those choices too we may not even see it but is that am i overthinking it no, actually, you're underestimating it because it's not just uh, it's it's lapped into a whole bunch of places like the military and um, mm-hmm. beyond that into large corporations and beyond that into every college in the United States, it seems. And I'm talking not only about being canceled, I'm talking about um, critical race theory, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, uh, Antifa. Uh, I, you know something, this has been coming and we were all blinded to it. We were, we didn't see it coming. Nobody saw it coming except those who were, uh, orchestrating it. Um, my experience in publishing houses was not to have, uh, somebody at the third level of employment at the company have enough power and voice to prevent books from getting published. Now everybody is scared of being, um, you know, being uh, canceled. And so it's really having an impact on the way people. uh, Here's the great irony. When I came into publishing in the 1970s and even more so in the 1980s, I worked for the big companies. I worked for Viking, St. Martin's Press, and I was the head of sales at Simon & Schuster at a very young age. But one thing was for sure. First Amendment was sacred in the publishing community. And if they decided to publish a book, they were going to go to the Supreme Court to make it happen. And that happened uh, through um, one company that took uh, Lady Charlie's Lover, the D.H. Lawrence, and other books to the Supreme Court for First Amendment purposes and won. Everything is now flipped upside down. And so the very same people, the very same houses are now shocked to find that, uh, you know, their own uh, employees 
are, you know, overriding First Amendment considerations. So it's a very, uh, I think, tenuous situation in general, and it's a very bad situation through, uh, in terms of what it implies for the United States. Well, and and Eric, uh, you know, sliding over, I know you made a comment on Facebook, and again, we're talking with Eric Campman, and by the way, republicbookpublishers.com, republicbookpublishers.com, you go there uh, and look at all these different books we talked about. Um, but sliding for a second from Facebook, which targeted old Abe somehow and then boosted sales on Amazon, but let's talk about Amazon for a moment, because, you know, the... the, the, the um, the the ability of Amazon to to if not silence sort of effectively limit the reach is unbelievable. And I'm thinking, by the way, of this book Abigail Schreier's book that she came on my show a yeah. year ago when the book came out, and it was it's called Irreparable Damage about transgender. She's not actually a a far right thinker or writer. She's she but she does say this transgender thing is damaging girls. And Amazon sort of put her on a, a list based on pressure from their own staff, and that's like. You know, that's like getting a, a, a silence, not on Main Street, but on, on the whole nation. And how, how does that going to affect things? Well, uh, first of all, I would say if it was a few weeks ago and this had not blown up as it has, uh, that Amazon has been a pretty good player. Uh, they have, I think, been pretty good about, um, you know, there are certain subject areas that they've stayed away from, but uh, I, I don't, I've never seen sort of a sense that they're going to close things down. Um, the company that does our distribution has an amazingly good re- uh, relationship with Amazon. And if it wasn't for Amazon, I think uh, uh, John Cribb's uh, old Abe uh, would not have done half as well. On the other hand, right. I'm not naive. And uh, what has happened in other sectors of our society and our culture could easily um, uh, filter into Amazon. Uh, I think it would be a bad decision on their part, but they haven't made that decision. On this particular book, I think the subject is so sensitive and so many people that work at Amazon are probably very... uh, 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 sensitive about it for whatever reason. And, uh, I, you know, I don't know what happened there exactly, mm. but yeah. it, was, it was no, it was no good. And, uh, let right. the public decide is my, my opinion yeah. on it. And, uh, and Amazon has been good about that for the most part. I mean, we have had no problems with Amazon and Amazon, uh, He's a huge player. We all know that. Um, but right. uh, I've had a lot, you know, I've had years and years of dealing. In fact, I started my own distribution company in 1996, the same year that Amazon launched. And I must say that I did not take off on a rocket yesterday. So <laughs> you did a little better <laughs> well, it's than good me. To note. Yeah, yeah, it's good <laughs> to know. Well, maybe, maybe. Uh, all right. Now, uh, again, we're talking with Eric Cam, and I want to cover uh, another aspect of this. You, you, Republic Book Publishers, in my estimation, again, you know, Eric Campman and Al Regnery have a lot of experience, so maybe that explains it. But the way you position yourself, I'm looking at the books, and again, RepublicBookPublishers.com. You've had a of these a couple dozen books or so that have been published by you, a couple of 
them have just popped, right? Or at least the people around them have sort of, like, Brandon Weikert is now all over. I see him all over being quoted. Sometimes he's, he did something on Twitter the other day. I was like, what is he saying? But he's now sort of an expert on space, right? Old Abe was big. The 19th hijacker, James Reston Jr., who's a pretty big name, but his book, I know, has been picked up as a movie. They're going to maybe make a movie out of it. So you've had this ability to pick kind of good authors plus a good topic and, and then get them to pop a little bit. Um, is that the model? And, and my segue to that is you mentioned some books well, that are I, coming. I, I, Can you tell us what's coming? Well, I, I'm, I'm going to, yes, I'm going to, um, uh, but I, I just want to address this because this is, you really hit the key thing about us that allowed us to propel the company forward faster than you would expect. So in 2018, I sold my distribution company to a bigger distribution company called Independent Publishers Group. And I had right. no idea. I owned another publishing company called Beaufort Books. I had no idea. And, and that company um, published Al Regnery's book. And so Al and okay. I go back to the mid-'80s when I distributed Regnery, and, and I helped. Uh, my role in all that was to find the open up the, the general market for Regnery because – they, they had a bit of an attitude that nobody's uh, we're going to get sort of not allowed to be in the trade marketplace, and that wasn't true. Uh, B. Dalton, Walden Books uh, embraced uh, the books came in. They may not have liked them, but they certainly sold them. And so when we started this, uh, we had a huge advantage that was unknown at first, and that's oftentimes the way it goes. When I sold my distribution company, I signed uh, distribution deals with the company that bought mine. And so I basically, and I, I kept my editorial chief and other mm-hmm. support personnel in place. And guess what? It was all in place the way we designed it for Republic. So Republic right. started as basically, you know, a, a company, a shell company. And suddenly it was all filled up with all the publishing structure you will ever need forever. And really, it made right. us uh, kind of comparable to the big co- uh, companies. But your your main yeah. point about, well, how do these books pop? Uh, I think that um, uh, our publicist, Dean uh, uh, Drasner, is the best person I've ever worked with. He is relentless. He keeps on uh, placing our titles, whether they came out three months ago or six months ago or yesterday. So I think he, and this would be true of any company, I think our social media is developing beautifully. So I think all components of publishing are in place at Republic. And that has been something that we've been able to tell our authors as we're discussing, you know, publishing their book, that you're going into the big leagues at Republic, even though two years ago we didn't exist. (laughs) So it's a pretty good story. Yeah, it sure is. Um, I'm a big fan, as you know. Um, Eric, give me a couple of tips, uh, a couple of previews on the fall. I just have about 30 seconds left, but uh, excuse me. Yeah, coming out in the fall and this next year, some give us a preview of a couple if so, you can. So uh, Mark Robinson is the lieutenant governor of Oh, yeah. Wow. Yep. Superstar. We, ha- yeah, we superstar. have his autobiography, and it's wow. being written as we speak, and it's going to come out in April. He's amazing. I yeah. love this man. Yeah. And Paul yeah. Mango, uh, Al Regnery brought this book in. This is the inside story of Warp, warp Speed, the, the Trump um, 
um, uh, drive. It was, it was kind of like a military thing of, of getting the, the, uh, the vaccine, the uh, vaccines done yeah. uh, by the yeah. end of last year. It's an impossible story. It's a beautiful story of how, in some cases, the federal government working with private enterprise creates a miracle. And that's what happened yeah. here. Wow. That's cool. All right. Listen, I got to run, Eric. Thank you. As always, I will put it up on social media, republicbookpublishers.com. Uh, also, you can go over on social media. I will put up there. They've got, you mentioned an active Twitter feed and uh, appreciate it very much, Eric. Thank you. It was great talking to you. Thanks, Ed. Okay. All right. We'll take a break, everybody. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Ed Martin here in a Pro-America Report. My next guest is Rick Elkin. We had him on the program a few weeks ago, and he was nice enough to send me his book, and I went, dug right into it, and it is really, it's really a good book. It's called The Illusion of Knowledge, Why So Many Educated Americans Embrace Marxism. So, Rick, I want to go right to it. In the mission statement, you say, uh, a lot of people are frustrated by the anger, mistrust, intimidation. Sounds right. By the way, this was published January of 2020. I'm there. In the epilogue, you say, turning point was the Clinton crime family lost. Um, Trump wins. Okay, now we're a year later after you published the book, year and a half, and uh, the Clinton crime family may not be, but the Biden crime family is on the march, and people are feeling, again, atmosphere of anger, mistrust, intimidation. It may be worse than ever. Doesn't it feel like that? Well, yeah, I think we've gone from um, you know a political situation to a, uh, a military situation. I feel like we are in the midst of a war and that the election was Pearl Harbor. And, you know, we we are now in an information digital war, and that changes the entire dynamic about everything. The politics at this point, like in, in any you know, wartime situation, almost become irrelevant, that we need to all get together and save the country. And this is what I think most people are worried about, is we don't seem to have that attitude. In fact, we're more divided than ever, so it's almost like, half the country wants to lose this war. <laughs> so that kind of puts us who want to win it in a, a pretty precarious situation because now not only do we have to defeat the enemy, but we have to defeat our fellow citizens to win the war. And they don't even know they're in a war. I don't know if that makes exactly that. Yeah, no, no, it does. And that's how I ask you. You, you mentioned in the book, uh, you're, you're admir- ad- you admire David Horowitz, and Horowitz is railing against the moment we're at. But what do you do, right? What do you do when people don't even realize? I, I watched General Flynn say this recently. Someone said, yeah, 2024, we'll fix it. And General Flynn said, we don't have time. We've we got to worry about it right now. How do you get people to change their, their uh, thought on this? Well, well, I don't know. Ed, this is the, the challenge of the day and maybe the challenge of at least of my lifetime um, that this is a real problem. And, I, you know, it, and it comes back to that whole illusion of knowledge thing that, that that phrase to me is so critical, because when you have people who think they know something and it's not correct, you know, they're the hardest people in the world to change their mind. And so this is kind of what we're up against. We have not just one, not two, maybe three generations of people now who have gone through an indoctrination period of higher education, and they think they know, you know, how to make the world run right, how to make the trains, you know, go on time. 
And yet, as you see evidence, everything is falling apart at the seams like an old silk purse. And yet, you can't mm-hmm. seem to point that out to them. They don't, they don't even want to acknowledge it. And so these are like zombies. They're just unwilling to think through things and recognize the realities of what's going on and how, you know, we're coming apart at the seams. The economy's coming apart at the seams. Our social equity's coming apart at the seams. Our, you know, uh, our world relations are coming apart at the seams. I mean, it's just, the, <laughs> I thought it was bad, you know, when, when um, Obama was running things and we had wars breaking out all over the Middle East and executions on television every other night and all. But now it's, it's, a different kind of tragedy and and it just seems to me like we're seeing countries society civilization deteriorating and and the problem now is that nobody's not nobody but a large uh, number of people think that this is great yeah so how do you think we're talking with that great yeah, we're talking with Rick. That's what I said. And that's uh, we're in the same boat. I mean, we're talking with Rick, Rick Elkin. And uh, another thing that I've heard uh, General Flynn say is in normal times, it would go like this. But these aren't normal times. That's the other part of this is it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to convince people that no matter what, in the last 40 years, we've had a president resign from his, uh, you know, his mistakes. We've had a president be shot and then survive. We've had, you know, this and that. And, and everyone, well, oh, it'll, it'll turn around. It, it's not normal times, is it? You know, it's hard to comment on what other times were like. You know, I wasn't there. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, right. all I can talk to is what times we're in right now and the times that I've lived through. I'm 70 years old, so I've been around for a while. I've watched a lot of regime changes and new presidents and, you know, you know different political strengths and weaknesses and all these kinds of things. But like I said, I don't think we're in a political situation right now. We're in a, an assault, I, I believe, personally. They were under assault, mm-hmm. and that America is the target, and it's our nation. It's it's my house, and somebody's trying to burn it down, and that's how I look at the situation. So, you know, I, I, I sit around with my friends, and they say, well, who are you going to vote for next time? And I'm like, dude, I don't think having an election in the middle of a war is the right thing to do. How can people go to the polls and be informed and make decisions when their house is on fire? It just doesn't make sense mm-hmm. to me. Until we fix this last election and get this fire put out, then I don't think we can go forward. I think we have to stop and fix the circumstances that we're in right now, that we are in Pearl Harbor, and, and you know, the Japanese are still bombing us. And, and I'm not suggesting <laughs> the Japanese are the problem here, yeah. but I'm using that as an right. analogy. Um, right. and, and I have my feelings about who's behind this, but I, but I think it's so much bigger than who do we elect next time around. But that, to me, is somewhat insulting to my intelligence. And, and this is why, so again, we're, you know, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, Go ahead. Well, we're talking. Well, we're talking. Rick Elkin. The book is the illusion of knowledge. Why so many educated Americans embrace Marxism. I I, I marked. I dog-eared the chapter. It's uh, I don't know what number, but it's called a little something. Page one fifty-three, where you used a quote to open it. Quote: The victim mentality may be the last un- uncomplicated thing about life in America. End quote. From Anna Quinlan. People that aren't good close readers don't know. Maybe don't remember Anna Quinlan. She was in the New York Times for a decade or more, and then went out and wrote all these different books. 
books and she was sort of she she was quoted as if she was wise i, I don't know her i never met her i don't pre- pretend to judge her but this is the kind of phrase but the victim mentality may be the last uncomplicated thing about life in america uh, you agree with her i mean that it, it, being that throw up your hands and say you're a victim and you're going to be in high cotton right yeah it's almost like a club or a fraternity <laughs> Everybody wants to go around yeah. and pat each other on the back and say, oh, you're a victim too? Well, me too. Wow. You know, we got a lot in common. Let's talk about it. Uh, and, you know, but let's not bother to try to fix it or correct it or change our attitude about living under those kinds of circumstances. Because if you're living in fear as, as a victim, you're not living. You know, you're, you're right. barely surviving. And, and that's a survival kind of um, mode. And I, I just can't imagine my children and their children living in a world like that. I know there's been people all over the world who've spent their entire lives living like that, but Americans haven't. And I just don't want to be the, the generation that hands off America to the next generation where they all feel like they're victims. Uh, that would just yeah. break my heart. It w- Yep. Yep. Well, I agree with you. Uh, hey, listen, uh, thank you very much for uh, uh, everything for the book and for coming on. We'll have you back on again. It, uh, it is a really interesting book. Rick Elkin, The Illusion of Knowledge. Uh, thanks very much, Rick. Thank you. Ed. I appreciate your time. All right. We'll take a break, everybody. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here in a Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, a national volunteer organization founded by Phyllis Schlafly and continuing to uphold her legacy by opposing radical feminism and representing a traditional conservative perspective in our nation's capital. And now from the archives of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, here is Phyllis Schlafly. If you've spent any time on a college campus in the last couple of years, you've probably heard the phrase rape culture. That's the latest slogan of the feminists. It's the claim that we live in a male-dominated society that encourages rape. Their statistics are ridiculously inflated, but there does seem to be a lot of sexual assault going on on college campuses. Feminists claim that's because we haven't taught men not to rape. Of course, that's ridiculous. The crime of rape has always been severely condemned and punished. We can lay the blame for these attitudes on the feminists. Thanks to the feminist notion that men and women have the same sexual drive and needs, colleges have become a sexual free-for-all. Some campuses even host an annual sex week where students can learn about all varieties of kooky sex. They've declared war on shame, and women are told that sexual freedom is liberating and empowering. If it were really true that men and women are the same sexually, all this free sex should lead to equal numbers of unhappy men and unhappy women. But that doesn't seem to be the case. We used to teach men to be gentlemen. Men were not supposed to coerce women into sex or take advantage of women who were too drunk to give meaningful consent. We also used to teach women to be smart and not go alone to a man's bedroom, especially if she's had too much to drink. In place of old traditional values, we've been left with a world where mixed signals confuse men into sex that a woman can later call rape, where predators can find easy prey, and where women are told that this is all empowering, even though their hearts tell them otherwise. Women are taught to delay any thought of marriage until they are established in a good career, and that they should, in the meantime, join the hookup society for fun. It's no wonder that this bad advice has produced a lot of unhappy women. 
This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report with Ed Martin, president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. For 50 years, Mrs. Schlafly promoted grassroots efforts to rally conservatives. Today, you can harness the power of social media by going to phyllisschlafly.com and sharing these commentaries with friends across the country. Get started at phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. And here we have to wrap up with a, an insider story. And let me make the headline of this segment is the case for Speaker Trump. The case for Speaker Trump. Donald Trump needs to be Speaker of the U.S. House. And here's why. In our American political system, there's only one dictator. It's the Speaker of the House, and it's Nancy Pelosi. Once there is a vote taken to decide who will lead the House, it is over. The House, you know, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, she controls the security guards, the lights, the air conditioning, the whole building at the Capitol, and more importantly, the budget, the agenda, the lawmaking authority, the initiation, all kinds of things. She's a dictator. And remember, what happens is that if, if one side has more votes than the other, right, a majority, in this case, the Democrats, they meet amongst themselves. They say, OK, we pick Pelosi. Then they go out and vote as a block. And then it's over. So Nancy Pelosi is the dictator. And, and by the way, this is not me saying this. this everybody knows this. The control of a of a speaker extends. The only reason she has to give the minority leader and his party anything is because she wants to try to have some kind of relationship. So now we move forward and we have Nancy Pelosi, who's she's she's the one leading on trillions and trillions of dollars of spending and all kinds of changes to welfare, to, to gut welfare, to work, uh, to make dependent people, all kinds of things. But she also sets up, because there was no bipartisan ability, there was no bipartisan agreement, she sets up this extraordinary uh, January 6th commission, a select committee, and she says to the minority, you guys can put a couple people on, go ahead, give me five people to put on there, I'm going to put eight people, I'm going to put one Republican myself, and then I'm going to put seven of my own people, so I'm going to have control of this thing, I guess that's the number, but she, she's not giving up control. So Kevin McCarthy canvasses his members and he says, you know, what? we're going to put Jim Jordan. We're going to put uh, Congressman uh, uh, Banks, uh, Jim Banks, a couple others and sends them over to uh, Nancy Pelosi. And Nancy Pelosi does what a dictator does. She decides she doesn't want to have to deal with Jim Jordan, who's really tough, or uh, a Congressman Jim Banks from Indiana, who's really smart. She decides I'm not going to bother. and She rejects them because she's dictator and there's nothing you can do. There's no formal procedure where you can object. And here's my point on this. She's a bully. She just wants a partisan witch hunt. She wants either non-credible people, meaning like, you know, freshmen or someone who's going to not be good, or she doesn't want anybody. Because why? Because she was in charge of the Capitol when the the, uh, protest happened. She was in charge of the police uh, there when the protest happened. She was in charge of the guys who killed uh, Ashley Babbitt. Oh, she was in charge of all that because she's the queen. She's the dictator. And here's my point. We this woman is out of control. You know, she's the same one that said we have to pass the bill to see what's uh, in it. She was talking about Obamacare. I think it was Obamacare. It may have been one of the stimuluses. No, it was Obamacare. And more importantly, she's so bad for America. So my back to my pitch. Uh, you know, we, we see now the abuse of power of the uh, of the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. And it's time to continue what we started six months ago when we right here on this program said, let's have Speaker Donald J. Trump. We do not have to have the speaker be elected as uh, the, the speaker does not have to be a member of the body. It could be from other anywhere else. 
Could be a senator, could be an elected official, could be nobody. Could be a famous person, could be a former president. Why not? By the way, we have had uh, former presidents serve in the House of Representatives. Uh, John Quincy Adams, I think, did. And we've had at least one um, former president go on the Supreme Court. I don't know if we've ever had one be a senator. I'll have to look into that. But th- this is my pitch now. Let's get Donald Trump. First of all, when he says he'll he'll accept the speakership, that will motivate all the MAGA voters to vote for him, uh, vote for for his party in the fall of 2022, which will be great for turnout. And then more importantly, can you imagine Donald J. Trump as speaker number three behind the vice president and the president? So it's, it's Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and then Donald Trump, if he's speaker and he controls the budget and he controls the House, uh, uh, you know, all the, the bills that go to the floor. He can you imagine it would be great. And my point, my, my point here is at this point, Nancy Pelosi, it, we're not surprised by it. She's one, she let, let's tip our hat to her. She's one of the greatest politicians of this era. She lost power. She got it back. She's gone. Her wealth has gone from 30 million to 150 million. Her husband's made lots of money trading stocks, stuff that's affected by her job. She's held in line. These absolute lunatic liberals and but mostly by being liberal. But more importantly, she's rabidly anti the positions I think Americans should have. She's anti-life, even though she says she's a Catholic. It's ridiculous. She's anti the limits of government. She's for more power for government. She's for anything that enhances the power of the ruling class. That's that, that, Again, I don't know her heart, by the way. I, I'm, not, I'm not mind reading. I'm not heart reading. I'm saying what her conduct is, is extraordinarily negative based on what we need at this moment. She has to be replaced. And you cannot replace her by saying she needs to go. You have to get someone elected. And my position is the best person to get elected uh, as speaker is to elect hundreds of Republicans, sweep them into power, and then vote for Speaker Donald Trump. And, and by the way, if there might be a way that this could even appeal to some Democrats, because you can say that Trump won't be president, so he can't, he's not going to be able to do everything. He won't have his foot, he won't have his foot, he won't have his finger on the nuclear uh, arsenal, if that's what you're worried about. You know, he won't have that kind of power. He won't have a, well, I was going to say he won't have an investigatory power. I'm not sure he did with the way the FBI treated him. But, you know, now Nancy Pelosi has decided to use a bunch of the money that she pushed through for the the, um, Capitol. And she's opening offices for the Capitol Police in Florida, I think, in California, maybe. Can you imagine? The Capitol Police, their job is to secure the Capitol. They're going to have an office, a a law enforcement office in Tampa, I think, Florida somewhere. And someone in, I think it's in California. It's insane. It's insane. She's a dictator. So Trump for Speaker. The case for Donald Trump. The case for Trump. The case for Speaker Trump. That's what it is. The case for Speaker Trump. All right, everybody. Thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you to Noah, our great producer. As always, uh, sometimes he's on the show with Noah Says. Noah Says. And uh, Joanna for helping us book these great guests. We will be back tomorrow. I think we're going to talk to Lee Smith tomorrow, the great author Lee Smith. I'm looking at one of his books up on my shelf. And uh, so go to ProAmericaReport.com. Make sure you're clued in on everything. And we'll be back tomorrow. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Talk to you then. America Report on The Answer, San Diego.